it was like my mind exploded. I couldn't fathom how nobody had told me this before. I kind of went on to talk about how, you know, as a designer, you're probably gonna have impacts that you don't know about. You know, you're probably gonna make choices about materials that will come from far off mines and people will be in wars. And he's just telling us all this stuff and I'm like, holy crap, like, <laughs> do this? What have I gotten myself into? And this one guy said, Layla, I don't know why you're freaking out. It's not like any of these like catastrophic environmental impacts will happen in our lifetime. So why should we care? And it was like, oh, I'm gonna make you care. <laughs> that was my result. Welcome to the Earth Ideas podcast. Interviews with academics, scientists, and journalists about their areas of research. Subscribe now, wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you, Layla, so much for joining me. I think your work is super fascinating because it's kind of like you make people unpick things that they already know about the world. Well, they already think they know, right? And you're very focused on, oh, you think that, and like, this is a given, but actually when you break it down, this is how we got to this place. But there were many different routes that we could have taken. And maybe the route that we have taken isn't working out so well. And I feel like the design industry is responsible for so much in the world and we overlook it. Products, services, the way things are run, the systems that those products move through. Like they, you, you guys, creatives, designers, are, are what give us the things that shape our lives, that define who we are, who, that sort of, that allow us to do the things that we might want to do. And and so in that same space, there's a lot of responsibility when it comes to the environment and the resources that we use to make those products and then what we do with them afterwards, right? Um, so I just think your work is just brilliant because I think it just, it slaps people in the face with that and then, and then asks them and, and makes them question things that they probably never have before. Um, so yeah, I really wanted to like talk to you a little bit more about it and what's sort of exciting you right now. But before maybe we get all, into all of that, I was, I was wondering maybe if you could sort of tell me um, what, what got you thinking this way? Like what woke you up? in a sense. Yeah, what's my what origin your... story? <laughs> yeah, what was your switch moment to be yeah. like? Yeah, well, actually it was in design school. Um, so I studied product design because I really wanted to make things and solve problems. And I felt like that was a really good medium to do that. And it was, I think, my second year of doing that, that I had a class with a professor who was quite eccentric. Um, and he got us to open a textbook very dryly and kind of start reading about something called the Gaia theory, which is from James Lovelock and from the 1970s kind of looked at the way that all natural systems are interconnected. And he came up with this scientific theory that has been um, now a dominant known uh, fact, which is that everything in nature is interconnected and that we live on one giant kind of, um, uh, you know, ecosystem called planet Earth. And I was like 19 or 20 at the time and I was sitting there and I, it was like my mind exploded. I couldn't fathom how nobody had told me this before like it just made so much sense of course everything's freaking interconnected why did anyone tell me this and then he kind of went on to talk about how um oh so you know as a designer you're probably going to have um impacts that you don't know about you know you're probably going to make choices about materials that will come from far off mines and people will be in wars and he's just telling us all this stuff and I'm like holy crap like <laughs> do this what have I gotten myself into and um so I was really I, I mean it's such a vivid memory as well because of course I was freaking out I'm a pretty kind of um uh with personality kind of person and I was only one of like two girls because this was like 15 plus years ago and I remember I kind of like slapped my hands on the table and turned to everybody like guys what are we gonna do like I was really freaking out and not anyone else was like everybody else was bored and they were kind of like yeah whatever Layla and this one guy said Layla I don't know why you're freaking out it's not like any of these like catastrophic environmental impacts will happen in our lifetime so why should we care and it was like oh I'm gonna make you care <laughs> that was my resolve 
I'm going to make every single freaking designer give a shit about the things that they create because they have these profound impacts on us, on the world and on the planet and the systems that sustain us and the world and the planet. And it's all a big interconnected mess unless we kind of navigate it in a much more respectful way. And certainly as somebody who had a desire to do good and I was learning the skills of kind of like manipulation and creative manipulation, I was pretty um, like miffed about the fact that I was not also really giving, being given the adequate tools to make the most informed and effective decisions. So I actually ended up quitting design school after a couple of years in a bit of a kind of, you know, like protest yeah. <laughs> stance. I was, what I tried to, yeah. in my, one, we had, we had an exhibition one, the second year and I try, I made this like industrial art out of waste products and they tried to not let me put it up. And so I made like a massive protest and then you know, the head of school threatened to not let me, you know, all these kind of jazz and then whatever I won the fight. And then I was like, screw you guys. I'm going to go be a social scientist. (laughs) So it's funny because then I went and studied sociology, majoring in sustainability and I loved it. Right. Like I just, it was like all of the inner nerd that I didn't know I truly had just kind of came out and I, yeah. I did really well academically, but also personally, I just kind of was like, my brain was really into like looking at all of the different factors of humanity and also learning really deeply about the environment and how it works and how we're connected to it. And ironically though, in like a full circle life thing, I ended up going back and or being invited to do my PhD in industrial design. So I ended up graduating with a PhD in design rather than an undergraduate. <laughs> so yeah, it's kind of like was my moment of truth and since then you know um i've held very true to my passion in this sense in that i will really want to help transform the design industry because i think it is one of the the coolest most profound um sectors and it's not just of course industrial product designers or fashion designers or graphic designers or any of the designers it's also all of the people who work together so the manufacturing sector um, engineers scientists as well who are working out new materials and and ways of um, of uh, kind of collecting things like the science of um, reverse uh, engineering and all this kind of stuff like it's a very exciting space to be in way more interesting than you know rehashing the old way of doing things so for me it's like super um uh that the cusp of comfort and innovation and sustainability mm-hmm. as a general concept is certainly like an unavoidable reality that if we can't figure out how to at least sustain the systems that provide life on earth then we're screwed but hopefully if we can figure out how to do that, then we can find a way of being a regenerative force on the planet, which is essentially saying that we give back more than we take. And for me, this is like an amazing uh, life goal, not just for me, but for you know us as a species is like, we have figured out how to do these phenomenal things, like mind blowing things. Our technology is incredible. Yet, even though we have all of this knowledge and, and information about the way the world works and what we need to be healthy, we still somehow manage to kind of like really misalign that in our um, kind of direction as a species. So I'm kind of really interested in seeing how we can make that change. And certainly in my lifetime, because as we know, things like climate change and plastic waste and pollution and all of these issues are affecting us. But even more so as well in this time of COVID, um, what we're also learning very quickly is just how much of a personal impact those those distant environmental issues have and this this COVID reality is is a perfect example of everything being interconnected <laughs> of feedback mm-hmm. loops and of how like you mess with nature and it's gonna mess with you back and that's what's happening <laughs> right now yeah 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 it's so quick the the repercussions that have come back to us has not been like your colleagues at design school thought something way off in the future like this is like oh you did this now bang um, here's, here's your comeuppance. The regenerative thing that you were talking about, um, giving back more than we take. I feel like the, I feel like designers, oh my God, that's exactly what they live for. Innovating, creating something new, thinking about the next step, thinking about what's happening. Um, and what they can sort of like change and make better. So with giving, giving back, um, more than we take, how, how could that work with, a growing population and, and and a population that wants more any anything that requires us to envisage something that doesn't already exist 
is a challenge. Um, but the cool thing about humans is that we love challenges. We're literally mm -hmm. engineered to respond to challenge well. So we are in an age of um, great new discovery. And that is not the new discovery of the lands that we can rake and pillage and colonize for raw materials, but it's a great discovery of our own creativity in the signs of adversity. And for me, this is really about not only developing the skills of understanding systems and sustainability and uh, understanding earth sciences and how this beautiful planet works or how humans work and our cognitive sciences and how we can help make sure that we're more collaborative and all of these factors coming together certainly create this incredible skill set that anyone, whether they be a creative or not, can adopt to be able to help kind of um, work towards that regenerative outcome, right? So it's kind of like not just a philosophy. I don't know if there's such a thing as like an action philosophy, but like how you go about doing things um, that kind of drives your mindset. And I think that what we really need in this moment is we need people to be, um, it's not about changing people, it's about being adaptive, right? Like being flexible rather than kind of like fighting against all the forces, using our natural skills and our agency, that's our ability to exert power in the world in the kind of craftiest ways we can. You know, most of us don't have huge amounts of resources, meaning it's not just financial resources, but time, you know, it's not mm -hmm. infinite, turns out. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, in this day and age too, we're having this extremely, um, strange experience of freedom restriction, right? Um, so I just traveled uh, from Europe to, to the UK and I had to do the 14 day quarantine. And it's super weird because there were a couple of moments where I was like, I can't leave the house. <laughs> it's like, okay, I was fine. But there were a few moments of like claustrophobic brain collapse, right? Because I'm so used to being able to do those things. And of course I am completely spoiled by that fact. And it's only when something is taken away that we truly appreciate it, which is a whole other psychology of abundance and scarcity and, and um, how to be more um, respectful of the things around us. Uh, but certainly I think everybody in the world as a result of COVID has definitely had a mini existential moment of, of question and reflection around what is of value to them and what's important. Mm -hmm. And what's important mm -hmm. for us to uh, respect as a species and also make sure that we preserve and certainly freedom um, seems to be one of those things, uh, as well as family and being able to hug people. <laughs> it's like, yeah. you know, a kind of deficit of human connection. And because humans are social animals, it's pretty much one of the defining factors of our success is that we are able to bond socially. We have mirror neurons and oxytocin and all of these different things that work to make us collaborative and caring human uh, species, right? And so mm -hmm. it's super important for us to be able to see those things and able to see them as resources that we can put together in kind of like a really awesome, uh, you know, soup or salad of our own skill set to help drive forward the change that needs to happen, no matter what we do, right? Like you could literally be working in a coffee shop or you could be the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. Your choices, your actions, what you model, what your morals are, these things have permeable effects, right? Um, of course, the sphere of influence of a Fortune 500 CEO is often a lot more um, <laughs> widespread than others, but at the same time, they started somewhere else, you know? These are all pathways that we take in order to get to destinations. And I think if we all keep at the end goal something better than today, like I'm very much of this idea that we are all, the future is made up of our actions and that we're all citizen designers of the future. And so we might not be professional designers who are literally making choices about materials and processes and manufacturing systems and how things um, ultimately exist in the economy, how they influence people. But we as consumers of those products and services are ultimately dictating what ends up being supported or elevated, right? The more people mm -hmm, who buy mm -hmm. things, the more people who complain about things, those two things fluctuate mm -hmm. in what's available in the marketplace. So I think consumer power is so undervalued. Like people think it's just about, um, you know, what their the power of the dollar or euro or pound or whatever it is. I think that it's much more, it's much grander than that because as well, a lot of emerging economies look to established economies for essentially like motivation or guidance around what modernity is. And so if that's all hyper-disposability, uh, planned obsolescence, um, devalued materials, uh, products that 
break and don't give you any true kind of sense of purpose, then that's what get, gets replicated around the world. It gets kind of cloned mm-hmm. and copied. And so for me, I think it's super, super important that those of us with the luxury of time and resources um, mm-hmm. that are, are a little bit more than perhaps other people in the world invest them in figuring out the bigger question, which is how do we as a species not only sustain ourselves and um, uh, be kind of respectful to the system and the world around us that we are part of, that we come from, that we rely on, you know, like food and water, that kind of jazz, but that we also figure out how to be um, a really kind of um, creative force for good so that the systems that we have uh, damaged can be not rectified, but can be um, worked within rather than against. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I was going to say, like, on the one hand, it seems like the CEO has so much more influence and so much more power, but really they are stuck in this system of economic growth and having to go back to their shareholders and say, this is what we've achieved, these are our numbers, where a barista in a coffee shop has the freedom to to say, I don't like this world. I want to do this. I want to well, change Well, there's that like story this. of the guy who refused to give coffee to the woman who wouldn't wear a mask. <laughs> you know, these micro <laughs> acts of rebellion right. that have right. this kind of uh, ripple effect, for sure. I mean, power and agency are very kind of um, flexible things, too, because in certain contexts, power is something that you can acquire, and in others, it's something that's given to you and that everybody else has to respect. So it's like cultural conditions really affects how we um, distribute power and how people have access to it or poach it from structures. But I think mm. the, the key thing here in this kind of moment in time is that uh, we have this great unlocking of opportunity that this massive slowing down of the economy, slowing down of consumption, slowing down of like our lives has given us, it's given us a pause, it's given us a moment of reflection mm and action. Mm -hmm. And that action is being seen like within the European Union, within some North American countries like Canada, where uh, fiscal stimulus is being tied to the green recovery. You know, it's like the problem with change is that when you're in it, it's very hard to see what it's going to be. So it's, it's like, you know, this uncertainty of the outcome because we're kind of gotten on a boat somehow and the captain's blindfolded or, you know, we're all blindfolded, (laughs) who knows? But either way, where we end up in one year or five years is still a complete mystery to most of us. And, and, you know, most of us don't have a crystal ball of the power of, you know, um, psychic future insights other than some good guesstimates and some hopeful um, planning and some like action, you know, like, getting shit done so that the outcome doesn't end up being the trajectory of the thing that we don't want, right? Like increasing Mm -hmm. the use of single use products so that we have more ocean plastic waste. So we have more microplastics ending up in our food chain and ultimately like suffocating the ocean, you know, like nobody wants that. Nobody sits there and they're Mm -hmm. like, you know, I really think we should completely (laughs) screw up the ocean this year. (laughs) I mean, maybe there's a couple of really whack people who that, that gets them off. But I think for the majority of humans, if you ask them, no matter what their political leaning is, no matter what their religious ideology, most people would prefer that their immediate environment be healthy, be clean. And I mean, we're seeing that too with communities that had air pollution just like dissipate from the shutdown, like one in India, where they, for the first time, they saw that, that they were living near mountains because mm. the pollution had been so bad for 30 years that most people had not actually seen that they were surrounded by mountains. Mm-hmm. Well, this gives them an entire new mindset around what life can be if um, the industry is altered. And, you know, pollution does not have to be a byproduct of industry. That's an old way of doing things. That's an inefficient and ineffective way of creating goods and services. So, you know, there's so much work to be done, but there's so much opportunity in that, right? And I think, you know, this is where the concept of the circular economy is kind of come in as this umbrella term to help us create a direction for uh, uh, internalizing the externalities that our current economy has, which is essentially where the big issue is, is that our linear economy, where we take things out of the ground, we process them into goods and services, then we use them up, and then we usually waste them, throw them away or um, recycle them, although the recycling industry has collapsed in the last two years. But so basically we have this linear economy that is very exploitative, right? Like humans and nature are exploited in order to maximize value and uh, that's not only value in monetary terms it's also uh, value is perceived usability like how much value can I get out of this material for how long that based on what I need right like 
a water bottle has a very high value for a short period of time and then it's completely devalued right mm-hmm. so this is like this psychology of value is something that i've been playing with for a few years and i still like mutter to myself a lot about it because i still haven't quite figured it out because we're so messed up when it comes to what we value you know mm-hmm. like six months ago we had completely different values i think to what we are now prioritizing as a value that is important to us right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. what we've realized we're missing yeah or because something that we took for granted suddenly has become uh, less available to us we become much more motivated to preserve that thing, uh, whether mm-hmm. that be our connection to our family or the ability to walk down the street, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. So anyway, the point that I was making is that the circular economy has definitely come in. It's stepped up in the last few years as a kind of, like I said, an umbrella term to help to make that direction. And we've seen governments make uh, really strong commitments towards this and a lot of companies. Like we have huge, huge companies like Ikea and Unilever and Microsoft, like some of the biggest known companies who are making really profound commitments to being mm-hmm. 100% circular or, or, or carbon positive, meaning they actually buy back the p- previous carbon emissions that they've had in the past 30 years of their success. And they find ways of like re-sequestering uh, that through different strategies, right? So we're seeing all of this incredible movement. And as somebody who's worked in this space now, what, 15, 16 years, I am always surprised at uh, how quickly suddenly the changes can happen. You know, like earlier this year, BlackRock, the world's biggest investment company, they actually committed yeah. um, to, they said that if you aren't, um, if you aren't uh, supporting climate change, then we won't invest in you. And they've come good on that and divested from a number of uh, energy polluting industries. I mean, it's, it's, it's quite a, a term we're, we're becoming familiar with, you know, but it, it's, it's pretty multi-layered, right? I mean, how this is going to take everybody coming in and, and, and switching over to this BlackRock, like you said, they're, they're like one of the biggest investors. I think they were in, in fossil fuels industries over the years. And now they're saying, and if it weren't for COVID, perhaps it would have kept tumbling that way. How much of the design industry do you think is thinking this way? How, how much are, are people really on board with this? I think it depends on a, which sector to start mm-hmm. with. So like the building sector has been at the forefront of this stuff for a while, right? This isn't new. Um, green building and now well wellness in buildings is a really uh, big part of the infrastructure of good building design, like developer-led buildings or something else. But so I think the building sector is a little more advanced than say the product sector. And then fashion, mm-hmm. I mean, fashion's having its like full come to, you know, <laughs> come to the altar moment and redemption from like the transition to fast fashion and all of the backlash uh-huh. against that. Um, so I do think the sector, it's sector dependent. I, I find it really frustrating when we talk about design as like, like the industry of design or the profession of design as being like a homogenous thing because the difference between like an architect and a landscape architect, okay, sure, they both understand spatial three-dimensional design, but the skills, the tools, the knowledge, it's fundamentally different. Um, and likewise, between product and graphic design, you know, of course, a graphic designer can be responsible for packaging design, but they didn't spend more more time on material sciences that a product designer would have. So, you know, it's kind of like, this is a very broad um, industry with lots of different um, subsectors. And so there's a different level of progression and a different level of embracing this change. Um, Mm -hmm. And then on top of that, you also have what industries people are designing or working within. So um, the automobile industry is very different to the uh, disposable packaging industry. Uh, You know, you could think of many different sectors and start to kind Mm -hmm. of tick off what they've been really good at and what they're lagging in. And certainly the disposable uh, packaging industry has benefited uh, from the transition to single use products because it creates a continual uh, flow of demand. But we know that whether it be a coffee cup or a takeout container, single use products are a massive uh, environmental and social issue. There's equity issues around the cost of continuing to have these and also the cost of removing them. Because the thing that most people forget when it comes to waste management, whether it be recycling or general waste, is that we pay for that. We pay for it in our rates, wherever we live in the world. We're paying for the service of digging a hole and dumping our discards of our lives 
or burning it to power energy, but losing all of those polymers that could be infinitely recycled or used to create high value, long life things. Like I don't have a problem with plastic. I have a problem with single use anything, paper, Mm -hmm. plastic, metal, anything that's designed for disposability is embedded in it, a, a legacy of waste and exploitation. And I find that the, um, this whole, uh, the tragedy of single use is that we also have accidentally convinced ourselves that recycling will solve the problem when actually it's increased it. Recycling has validated waste and it's a really um, tragic thing to acknowledge <laughs> because when you look at it, most communities where recycling has been has increased, so has the production and use of single-use products. And now, since 2018, when China refused to accept any of the world's recycling, we had Mm -hmm. um, basically the collapse of the recycling market. And so Mm -hmm. now we are living in a time where most of us who still recycle, the products are not actually going back into a recycling chain. And just to put it in perspective, Mm -hmm. only 9% of all plastics ever produced since we developed plastics in the uh, 1950s have been recycled. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we live in an age where we, we want the simple and fast solution, but we've created very complicated problems. And so when you look at like, say, people working in that sector, they would say to me, yeah, but Layla, like, this is my job. Like, I need to still, you know, eat <laughs> and pay my rent or mortgage. And I'm like, great, of course you do, but you shouldn't have to lose your job. Let's look at the functionality of what you're trying to achieve. You are mm-hmm. trying to achieve the, the um, easy transportation of a product, usually a perishable product, because most um, single-use packaging is used for perishables. Of course, there's a lot of packaging products, uh, product packaging, but let's look at the sheer magnitude is like beverages and food products. Um, so you're trying to protect something for a, period, a short period of time, usually through transportation from the store to your home or from the production facility to the store. And so you can do that in so many different ways. And certainly when I've worked with the, the, the packaging industry, I'm like, guys, the, the big innovation here is closing the loop. You don't sell a single use product, you sell a service and mm-hmm. you design the infrastructure around that service. And then you have not only continual customers, but you dominate that market. Like right now, if you're gonna go into the disposable packaging industry, your competition is massive and it's a quite mm-hmm. a price competitive uh, environment whereas if you design the infrastructure the products the services the take back systems for reusable um product delivery you basically completely change the game right yeah. and to me this like yeah. not thinking like that is what infuriates me because i'm like this is not only good for the planet it's really good for business if you do it well yeah. that's so interesting i, I mean I, I did a, a research project for a, a, a new startup recently um called loop innovations and their whole thing was about stuff that goes to festivals stuff to, to, that um people at festivals will use and and one-off events and outdoor events like cups like plates whatever but their system is you know take it and then uh take it away and recycle it or wash it, whatever is the most energy efficient and then bring it back. And th- that was their service. And yeah, like you said, it, it could, it's, has more value that to a person, to the client than the plastic cup itself. Well, also because people spend a lot of money, not, not usually us, I mean, some people uh, transfer the cost onto the consumer that for most most uh, companies small businesses they spend a really significant amount of money on buying disposable products whether it be coffee mm-hmm. cups or you know if you're a small restaurant that had to convert to deliveries home deliveries during covid you would have very quickly gone and bought a, a crap ton of you know most likely plastic or even paper packaging that would have been lined with plastic because otherwise all the liquids would fall through it. And those are, okay, so the plastic ones technically are recyclable because they're usually under a number five in the little triangle, which is the number that represents its recyclability. But like I said, it's, if you look into it now, like things aren't being recycled. Like most councils around the world are burying their recyclables um, Mm -hmm. or there's a lot of third party, um, like unscrupulous players popping up uh, ever since the ban from recyclables going to China. So anyway, the thing is, is that the, the system changes that need to happen, the transformations, they're not just transformations to services, they're also transformations in the way we deliver functionality. And because ultimately 
When you buy something, you're buying functionality. It's the only reason you buy something because you want whatever function. Okay, sometimes the function is purely aesthetic, you know, but a lot of the times it's much more practical. It's giving you a service of, you know, sustenance or warmth or comfort or uh, productivity or whatever else. And so if we design starting from what the functional delivery is, then we can reconfigure the way we deliver that in the marketplace. We can really rapidly transform the way we do things and ultimately change the game when it comes to the designs of like the past. A lot of the products and services that we are used to are just old designs that get replicated because nobody's thought to innovate on them. And so, you know, it's a truly, truly exciting time, but it really requires a certain mindset and skill set that a lot of designers are not being taught nor do they have a ready access to getting the upskill in this, right? So, I mean, I've been working to kind of introduce these concepts into the different design platforms, whether it be um, like uh, the 3D modeling software or streamlined lifecycle assessment tools, like I've done all of that in the past. And now I run a school for adults called the Unschool, where we literally just teach people the tools of thinking differently. Because for me, what I've learned when I created these like practical tools, they're really useful, but only if you understand the kind of mindset shift first, like (laughs) to look at things in a different way. I call it like three-dimensional thinking because we live in a linear economy. We've all been taught to think in this really one-dimensional way. So Mm -hmm. this method that I created, the disruptive design method, it's literally like transforming things to look at it from a three-dimensional. So you look and you reflect in and through things, you mine a problem, you landscape it using systems, and then you build using traditional design um, thinking tools. And that kind of forces you to constantly question and challenge from the base of what you're trying to create. And then also really trying to understand how it fits into the world and how it impacts the people that it's going to be engaging with. We think that we create products that we need, that we, we have a use for, that we are like, oh, I need, I have this gap in my life or I have this problem, this, you know, this thing that needs fixing and this is the product. But really like products sort of change us, right? Yes. You actually touched on something that I say a lot, which is that we design the world and the world designs us. We're in this dynamic relationship, like the products and services that we use, that we bring into our lives, they change us. Mm -hmm. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't know how old you are, but when we had 5110s, Nokia's, the old Nokia's that you had a lot of of this with because you had basically your thumbs to text and the size of the phone and Snake, the best computer phone game Best, ever. Yeah. Undeniably. <laughs> anyway, you know, there was all of these uh, paper articles coming out at the time that our thumbs were getting longer because evolutionarily <laughs> because of that. And then of course now, you know, because of the smartphone, we no longer, we're like poking things all the time. Um, and the thing is, is that now we have what's called tech neck, which is where most of us spend a large percentage of our time with this sh- different shift in our neck. And so a lot of chiropractors and, and back specialists have like, Uh, if you go to one they have like charts where they're like how to rectify your tech neck you know so (laughs) this is the thing the things we bring into our lives they change us and we Mm -hmm. then have different expectations as a result of that now you've got kids where there's lots of neuroscientists and studies that are saying we don't know what impact young minds being socialized through touch screens how that's going to change the way they interact with the world and i know from from my perspective like I mean, I'm like obsessed with my own brain glitches because they seem to, it seems to do really bizarre things. Like if I've spent time on my phone or whatever, and I've been doing like, you know, scrolling into something, if I'm reading a book, I try to do that. I'm not (laughs) afraid to admit it. I'm like, I've seen a map like on a wall and I went like this and I went, what the (laughs) is wrong with you brain? This is a piece of paper. This is not a screen. You are an adult. <laughs> Figure this out. You know, <laughs> like it's like it's like I remember years ago when I first started using computers. I remember a moment. It was probably the first moment where I was walking down the street and I tripped and my brain went Control Z. <laughs> I, I was mean, gonna say every time I read a book, I'm like, can I command F this thing? Like, where can I? <laughs> The amount of time. So I mean, this. so it's it's fascinating and a little creepy yeah. at the same time. You know, I mean, we know yeah. that tech has capitalized off our own brain glitches, like um, 
uh, most social media is based off continuous scroll, which is replicating a slot machine and you get the dopamine and neurological rewards from like, woo, what's the mystery? What's the mystery? Oh. Yeah. So the guy who designed the um, notification button that appears on any of your apps, he refuses to let his kids use technology because he knows how addictive it is because he designed one of the most addictive it, notification systems ever. To be that way. Oh yeah. my God. They know us. They know us better than we do. Well, I mean, there's a lot of um, science around this now, you know, in the last 10 to 15 years since we've had advances in, in uh, MFRI scans and, and we're able to like peer into the human brain more. We've discovered a lot about our, the cognitive functions, but also thanks to some incredible work in behavioral economics, we've also discovered our collective foibles of cognitive um, biases, you know, which are these universal experiences that our brains do partly evolutionarily and partly socially, like confirmation bias, where we seek out information that reaffirms what we already believe. Next time you're Googling, totally take a little moment to check if you are skipping through things that don't are not actually what you want. Like they're not reinforcing what you already believe you're looking for. And so this mm. basically is one of the reasons we have such polarization on political issues such as climate change or gay marriage or whatever, because people make an opinion, even if the opinion is completely unfounded fact, and they often like reinforce that by finding more information that reinforces it. And the thing about cognitive biases is they're like, there's hundreds of them and they're utilized mm. in different ways. Um, there's a lot that are around our social well-being. So the concept of like you would have heard like herd mentality. But yes, we are a, we are a species that benefits from connecting and socializing with others. So we often um, mimic the behaviors of those that are around us. And there's this one that um, is essentially if, if there's if, if you're in a group environment and there's something happens, like let's say someone falls over and nobody does anything, then nobody will do anything. It requires mm. one person to do something to then normalize the act of doing something, but nobody doing something normalizes the act of not doing something, which is a microsecond decision. And yeah. there's like, like so many of these. And the thing about understanding cognitive biases, not just like stereotypes and all of these other things we know, like implicit bias with gender and all this kind of jazz, but kind of some of the more quirky, funny ones, like one of my favorites, I always think about this, it's called um, sunk cost. There's two that, that, that are in this little dance, sunk cost and loss aversion. So loss aversion is that we really don't like losing things, right? Okay, it hurts. Mm -hmm. And actually mm -hmm. it hurts double the amount of gaining something. So if you lose a hundred bucks, it will hurt double the time of finding a hundred dollars. Like that's the science of it. And if you think yeah. about it, it's true. Like if something bad happens, you're more likely to like kind of be pissy about it for a longer period than if something good happens. Anyway, yeah, so that's the first one. So we hate losing things. And second, there's this one, the sunk cost. So where when we sink time or energy or resources or money in something, we don't want to give up what we've sunk, even if we realize that it's futile to continue trying to do it. And I always think about this when I'm lining up for something. I hate lining up. I'm super impatient. But let's say I'm lining up for some delicious food and uh -huh. you get halfway down the line and it's taken forever. Okay. So you look back and there's like 20 people there and 20 people there and you think, oh my God, it's taken all of this time and I have to now invest all of that time again. And you're like, oh, but I've lost all that time, but I don't want to do that. Uh -huh. But I've lost all that time. What do I do? <laughs> you don't want to lose that time, but you also don't want to rationally lose that time. So mm -hmm. it's like, you know, the amount of times I've been in this situation where I'm like, Layla, bust through the loss aversion, deal with it, walk away from the yeah. line. Like you do not need this delicious food as much as the rest of this time or whatever else it is. So, you know, we are a complex, <sighs> wonderfully complex uh, beings. And, you know, thankfully we're learning more and more about how we operate so that we can um, design things better. But it also means that there's many players in the market who will take that information and use it to create economic advantage for themselves. And mm. so I think, you know, it's like there's two sides to every coin and we're in that right now. Um, I don't think it's necessarily a battle. I think that at the end of the day, uh, humans have a desire to protect themselves. Um, and so when the shit really does hit the fan, as it is starting to right now, as, as we speak in a very mm. hot UK, I keep telling myself, the UK is never this hot. Yeah, this <laughs> like, is unusual. I am like, whoo! 
like how 35 degrees for like several yeah. days in a row. So like, yeah, yeah. Like this is this is this would be a one-off every couple of years. Like, this is what we're talking about, right? Yeah, I mean, it's earlier, happening right now. <laughs> earlier this year, before COVID, you know, half of my home country burned to the ground. That's Australia. And before COVID, it was the biggest news. You know, half of yeah. the world's masks had gone to Australia, to, and then they went to um to California because then California <laughs> burned, and that was yeah. out in winter time. So, you know, yeah. it's absolutely insane to think of the, the transformations to our natural systems. And back to that story at the beginning of my dear friend slash person who I can't remember their name of, but just have his face etched into my brain, who stated that it's like not going to affect us in our lifetime. And oh, his ignorance. But the thing is, is it's not just, just a kid thinking that. Like this is the, the conversations that many people have with themselves, let alone their peers that these, that it actually just on cognitive biases, there's another co cognitive bias called optimism bias, which is that it's very hard for the human mind to imagine a bad version of the future for ourselves. So mm -hmm. even if things are really crappy, most of the time we imagine ourselves being the hero of our own story and getting to a better place. It's otherwise we wouldn't survive. And so when it comes to catastrophic things like climate change, in our own minds, we're like, we'll be fine. Like, it's going to be mm. bad, but we'll, I will be fine. I'm going to find a way to be fine. And I mean, mm -hmm. even people who are at the forefronts of the activism around this and are, are you know, um, speaking of the horrors of climate change, um, truly inside themselves, they would have to have a narrative of hope because otherwise it's hopeless. I mean, for me personally, I, I'm very hopeful of, of a positive future. And I, I am not ignorant to the challenges and the work that needs to be done to get there, but I have full faith that we will eventually figure out how to not destroy ourselves. I, I do take issue sometimes with, um, especially people who are in the climate, like climate action sort of world or environmentalist self-declared campaigners with this whole, I have hope. And t t saying all of these problems and then sort of ending with, well, I have hope about it. I ha because I feel like it gives everybody else which is the 90 percent a reason to say okay well they think we've got it so we've got it whereas like i feel like sometimes when i'm sitting here like like you said right now it's london and you know it's sweaty and it's it's unusual for it to be this way and the whole planet is changing i feel like maybe it's time to say we're kind of fucked guys like but, well, I mean, there is, of come course, on. people who say that and there's no yeah. shortage of people who will also say that we're screwed because of the moral decay of our society because we're no longer God-fearing right. people. So, I mean, <laughs> you know, like, I mean, personally, for me, the thing is, is that I'm not somebody who encourages people to not take action. Like, you got to get your shit done. Like, you can't just mm -hmm. expect to do the same thing and get a different outcome. That's not how it works. And actually, mm -hmm. I did a project with the UN called the Anatomy of Action, where they asked me to figure out how to create um, a project that would help anyone anywhere in the world engage with sustainable living and lifestyles. And so I came up, the Anatomy of Action is your hand, um, because you take actions every day with your hand. And five main lifestyle mm. areas, right? Like food, stuff, move, money, and fun. There are five mm -hmm. things that we make choices every single day of our lives, and they have impacts. So the food we buy and how we use it, whether we waste it, whether it's packaged, whether it's meat or whether it's vegetables, where it came from, the stuff that we buy and the way we use it, whether we repair it, whether we um, bought recycled or reusable, the um, way we move around our cities, whether it be on foot or on bike. And actually a really cool byproduct of COVID is that both London and Paris and many other big cities are now putting in significant amounts of bike lanes because it's a much safer way to travel during mm. the age of COVID. And then you have, um, hang on, move, food stuff, move money. <laughs> you have money. I forgot money. How funny. Oh, that rhymed. Oh, dear. Um, oh, yeah, I need that. Yeah. So and money. And that's actually a really interesting one because, of course, everyone would think, well, I spend money on everything. It's like, no, but where we keep our money. And I hadn't really thought about this until I somehow started talking to like the people who manage all the pension funds. Where we keep our money, whether it be actually like our day-to-day -day, like income or our um, superannuation or whatever it is that we have invested in, where we keep that has massive impacts because that's the money, that's the capital that invests in things. And so you can mm -hmm. divest from fossil fuels by calling your superannuation company and be like, hey guys, I don't want to 
I don't want to buy any like new coal powered fire plants with my pension funds and you can change and divest and you can move your money and you can call up and get ethical banks. And, you know, it takes a little bit of work, but it's like hugely impactful. And it's something you can do without mm -hmm. leaving your bedroom, you know? Mm -hmm. And then mm -hmm. the final one is fun, which we all like to have. And that's obviously like entertainment and travel and all of the things that we do to keep ourselves excited. And there are so many opportunities that are having a positive impact, right? Like travel, for example, when we're allowed to do it again. Um, you know, it has a really it, distributing economic resources around the world has really positive trickle down effects for people. Um, but also mm -hmm. we gain a lot of respect and understanding for the world, the more we can expose ourselves to it. But there are so many ways of traveling slowly and traveling with respect and, you know, investing money in local communities through better choices around where you're staying or where you're eating. And so, I mean, in doing that work um, and developing that tool, which is free online, anyone can get it. It's at the anatomyofaction.org. Um, I was really surprised because the method that I used was to look at like the last five years of peer reviewed academic papers around what actions could be taken. But the way I figured out what actions to look up, I actually did a, a little meta analysis of what people are doing already. So we looked mm. at these organically growing movements like the zero waste movement, minimalism, um, anti-hauling which is a thing where people like inst instead of buying lots of stuff they don't like there's all of these micro movements mm. that are appearing not only on social media but on community levels and we kind of mapped them all and then categorized them based on lifestyle choices and then looked at validating which of those actions really would have based on the science an impact if lots of people did it because this is all about social contagion Right. So more people refusing, you know, plastic single use water bottles by taking their own. Um, it might feel like you as an individual, it's not impactful. But when you do it so well that everybody else wants to do it and it becomes a thing in your office or your school that has mm -hmm. a magnifiable impact. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, that was the really interesting thing with that study is that um, actions have impacts. Like this is the basic reality of the world. The things we buy, the things we do, the things we say, the things we don't do, the things we don't say, you know? So I think it's really important to have more agency around our choices. And even if we have a very small uh, economic kind of piggy bank to spend on things um, in our, in ourselves, the things that we invest in, like we said, they make us, you know, like, mm -hmm there's all of these different dynamic relationships. So the more we can invest in things that help make things a little bit better in our communities, um, you know, like I refuse to buy from Amazon because I think it's a very um, uncommunity orientated company because I would mm -hmm. prefer to go and find a local service provider to get that product because then I'm helping keep money in mm -hmm, my local mm -hmm, community. Mm -hmm. Yeah, or you could find what you want on Amazon and then just go to that company's website. Like it's all right there, Who who's manufacturing it and where it is and, and everything. Um, the people that you sort of work with uh, in your, you said it's an, an adult. So like it's people in working in these fields, right? Are they, you know, are these people who are um, designers or are you working with across different industries and, and different sections of, as you were saying, sectors of where, pe where designers work in? Well, I mean, I have a problem, which is that I keep doing new things. So I run, I do three key things. I run a design agency called Disrupt and we use design as a catalyst for social change, creating often educational uh, projects or like this um, UN projects, like using our method to basically create an intervention that helps make change um, with a respectful mm -hmm. approach. So we have, I've designed a learning system for Finland, one for Thailand. I've also just recently done a huge report on the future of workplace sustainability and uh, done lots of different fun things with that company. So in that case, I work with organizations. I work with usually leaders within those companies and we look at transformational change um, or governments or whatever else. Um, but then I run a school called The Unschool that I mentioned that is for adults and it's where we give people the tools of system sustainability and design as, as active tools for change making. And they're people from like, everywhere like we have an equity model so we give away 20 percent of our places in our programs and content so we have people from all over the world um from all industries from all age groups i mean the youngest we've had is like 18 and the oldest was like 70 so oh, nice. <laughs> yeah and um yeah it's just basically for anybody who wakes up one morning and they're like holy crap man this isn't what i signed up for i want to do better things i need the tools mm -hmm. for that and i want a community of people who help me do that and um and so it's super diverse we have a lot of creatives who come um because obviously it's like a creative focused school but we have lots of 
people working like I, I mean I've had people who work for like major corporations and because you know I'm pretty well known now like people get sent to us from like massive companies go and figure out how to be circular system designers that come back and do it oh. for us so oh. and then the other thing that I've done recently um, was I spent the last three years regenerating a farm and building a, a kind of sustainable living hub in central Portugal um, which we had to pivot because of COVID but uh, mm. you know in doing that I got my hands extremely dirty literally mm. and mm. learned a lot about how natural systems um, change and also challenged myself to live a much more sustainable and low impact lifestyle which was really interesting because there are some things that are really challenging and other things that are like just no-brainers um, mm. and so for me that's kind of one of the things I think is really important is to always be challenging ourselves because I've learned that innovation creativity uh, breeds the most um, positive outcomes when you're at the edge of your own comfort zone um, mm. and that there's that what what is called as the flow state right where it's like the combination between skills and challenge and so you know when I'm working with people I could be working with like five-year-old kids or you know 55 year olds old white guys who are in managing an engineering department of a massive manufacturing company and for me it's all the same conversation it's like how do i ignite their curiosity for the way the world mm. works because mm -hmm, we live mm -hmm. in magic like this place is freaking magic and we don't yeah. appreciate that and so if i can ignite that and it can be then um, sustained through an intrinsic change, but also with the skills to then apply that curiosity to the world so that we can make different choices, be that in our day-to-day -day mm. lives, how we interact with those that are around us or in our businesses, then we can have really significant change. And so if mm -hmm. I'm coming in to do training in a company, of course, I'm going to teach them the skills, but I'm also hopefully going to teach them that curiosity about how things are made and why they're made that way and how we can design them better as much as like here are the tools that you need to figure out how to do that that whole like like that asking people how can we you know what is it that you want at the end and how can we think about different ways to sort of get there and um i want to your your farm come back to your farm that sounds awesome what was that like what is that it's one thing to hear nature is connected and this works because of this and this trickles down to this and you know there are as a whole field of people who are looking at nature and saying um what can we copy and what can we use biomimicry yeah exactly yeah, i wasn't um, trying to, i wasn't trying to like do biomimicry i feel like we don't want to mimic mm. nature we want to work within natural systems and actually what yeah. i wanted to understand was how nature solves problems because as a designer as a creative we're problem solvers right and i was like mm. i only really know how to solve problems from an anthropocentric from a human-centered perspective i want to know how like nature solves problems and um obviously that's a lifetime's worth of work but um, a few years ago, I was named champion of the earth from the United Nations, which was a obviously very exciting thing to Amazing. receive. But it meant yeah. that actually I, I received it in the same year that Afro Shays, who is a, an Indian law, a lawyer who did the world's biggest beach cleanup in Mumbai, which I'm sure many people have heard about. It's really inspiring. And mm. he and I went and did a beach cleanup. We were in um, Cancun where we received the reward. And I had a very funny moment where I, I don't know, I saw a coconut and I made a comment about the coconut on the side of the beach. And this guy was like, well, yeah, you know, that came on the currents from blah, blah, blah. And it's going to turn into a coconut tree. And I had this moment where I was like, coconuts turn into coconut trees. <laughs> and this guy looked at me like, how did she just get named champion of the earth? And of course it was like pretty embarrassing, but also it was like, don't judge me. I'm really good at other yeah. things. I don't know that. I haven't been hanging out in tropical environments my whole life. But I kind of left thinking, hmm, I might have a knowledge gap I need to fill. And so, yeah, I took on an opportunity to really immerse myself in a, a natural environment and to apply some of the different um, tools of, of other other practitioners like uh, uh, permaculture and syntropic farming and I never I didn't know how to farm a thing I did not know how to grow anything I had grown like one tomato plant unsuccessfully I think in my life before I took on a farm and I failed so phenomenally I, I cannot I mean there's a whole book in all of the ways I effed up accidentally in trying to start things and do things but the, 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 the process of learning how to actually create a successful organic farm, of which it is now, um, was really amazing, as well as traumatizing at times. I created like an accidental fly farm at one point. I had a lot of insect battles. Um, 
on myself yeah. as well. But yeah, yeah I don't yeah. know, like, yeah. it's a very hard thing to really explain in detail because it's a, such a strange experience to go from, like, I was living in New York and then I went and lived on a farm. And I, I think this is something that people fantasize about. It's mm. so much hard work. Like, I mean, I'm a hard worker, but I mean, it's like, it's like, it's so much hard work and it's a, it's very rewarding. It's extremely rewarding. The t- when you pick your first tomato that you've grown from a seed and you eat it and it tastes like the most delicious thing ever, it's like the best feeling. Um, and when you mm. kind of like have a battle with an insect that's trying to kill your thing and you win against that, that's, these are really rewarding experiences and, and being mm. very connected with a system like that is amazing. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it was incredible and we ran a lot of programs there and, and we actually, cause I have like this community model, we had open days every uh, month we had on the last Sunday of the month for like the two and a half years we were operating and, um, we had thousands of people come like every time we had it, we had between 20 and 50 people to show up and we did this collaborative cooking where we would just pick things from the vegetable garden. I'd like make up a menu and then everybody would eat it, cook it and eat it together. It was fun. And, um, I'm really obsessed with food. I think secretly I just wanted to like get people to like cook vegetables. (laughs) Actually, it's funny because during lockdown, I actually, I was on the farm and I, I wrote a cookbook with one of my collaborators that was based off like a bunch of recipes that I had learned from like being in a seasonal process. Like you get suddenly like a million zucchinis for like three weeks mm-hmm. and you can, mm-hmm. you just have to find like 101 things to do with zucchinis. And then you have so many tomatoes <laughs> you've good. never imagined. And you think I can never eat a tomato again. And then it gets to winter and there's no tomatoes. And you're like, thank gosh, I made sun dried tomatoes, you know? So I don't know. It's like there's I think the cookbook and in the future, I would love to write something on the reflections from that. But it was an amazing experience. And I think if anybody listening is like fantasizing about going and living in a rural environment, I'm like, do it. But do it with other people who are just Mm. as hard workers as you, because Mm. it is hard work. And unless you do it well, then it can end up being a lot of hard work without a lot of reward. And um, and I really have so much respect for farmers now and farming and agriculture and like food systems, because it's so much work to grow one cob of corn or to grow one cabbage. It's like an amazing amount of resources and conditions of optimal um, weather and water and all of these and soil fertility and, and stuff. And if you just, if you ignore all of those elements, then you don't see how beautiful, beautifully everything works together to achieve life. And that life mm-hmm. is optimized to sustain itself and recycle itself. So one of the key things I learned from that was that there is absolutely no such thing as waste in nature, that everything is just the, the source of, of, of opportunity for something else. And I know that seems really like obvious, but it's actually not like a chicken would die. And I, I stopped getting upset about it. And I started being like, oh, I could plant this under a tree and this would give the nutrients to the tree. And it, it became like less of this mm-hmm. like tragedy and more of this opportunity. That is beautiful you have such a way of thinking about things and you are incredibly hardworking. it sounds like just like someone who can take on any task and just smash it, it um oh what what have you got coming up what are you what are you hoping to be able to do yeah well, at the moment actually we're the... just launching a, a whole new series of uh business sustainability tools because you know that's actually where we're at right now which is super exciting there's a lot of traction a lot of organizations mm-hmm. are hiring people mm-hmm. there's all these green new jobs green new roles like people are like let's do climate change stuff and so mm-hmm. there's a massive skill deficit in that um so i'm actually in like quite uh, intense um content development at the moment around a whole series of uh, programs for getting sustainability into businesses but doing it well with understanding all of the different ways to do environmental impact assessment and then policy development, like nothing that is extremely riveting, but very Mm. important. And then also more kind of like executive training so that some of those CEOs or or senior leaders who are willing to be pioneers do it with the integrity and the kind of um, knowledge of the systems mindset. So I'm building all of those Mm. things. So they're all starting to come out over the few weeks. You were talking earlier about um, your ideas about the value of waste and the value of things and how we value things. Is that sort of like an idea that's going to become something later on? Yeah, I mean, I work, I've been working on a book for years. I keep, I'm working on a book consistently. (laughs) I think lots of people, like I've written so many handbooks, but like, 
Anyway, it's a, and yeah. I'm exploring this, I'm exploring the value of reconfiguring the value of waste. Yes. In multiple funny ways. Mm. Um, but also, um, I actually have a TEDx talk I did on this. It's called, how do you value invisible things? And it's funny because I talk about pineapples and diamonds and I, about the value of things because pineapples used to be worth $10,000. So, um, mm. and, and diamonds are actually worthless. Like they're very abundant in, in, there is a cartel and it's a known cartel, the whole history of how we created this false value of diamonds being mm. a girl's best friend. And so this concept of value is something that, um, I've been exploring in different ways, but I am continuing to explore, but yeah, it's a, I think that's a, a bit of, um, an enigma, it's right? Very because topic. yeah, value is something Super. like we, we get taught the value of money yeah, we're told right? what to value but yeah, and also yeah. it changes so dramatically too like yeah. you know when you're a kid and you get like ten dollars oh my god you are so rich and then when what you're an adult it's like <laughs> i can't do anything with this you know <laughs> so i think it's it's funny because again it's like contextual and yeah. um but also it's what we assign value to and yeah so i'm, yeah. I'm working on that give it give it a bit of time i i, I it, you know, eventually we'll finish this book. I don't know how yeah, many years it'll take. <laughs> sounds mega interesting. I'm I'm definitely gonna sign up for it. Um, yeah, I think that's awesome. Thank you so much. My for, pleasure. Like, you're so full of energy and like, <laughs> oh, the way of thinking. It's very interesting. I, I really enjoyed that. <laughs>